Guys, why don't you grab your Bibles, and then I'm going to have you stand back up. I know, you just sat down. I know. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 42. I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll, we'll sit and dive in. <clears throat> it says this, Mark 9, 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. Father, we admit and acknowledge, Lord, that these are your words. If we didn't believe it, God, I don't think we'd probably be sitting here spending the next 45 minutes thinking about it. Lord, we believe that these are your words, that you spoke them, that they were recorded, that they were heard by, by Peter, passed on to John Mark, who wrote them down for us in an inspired, this inspired word, God, that we can now read it, understand it, and apply it to our lives. Father, would you speak this morning like you can only speak? In Jesus' name, amen. Grab a seat, guys. Some of you are thinking, that's what you're going to preach with kids in here? Yeah. Buckle up. Didn't plan that, by the way. <laughs> We're just teaching through the book of Mark, and it worked out that way. What do you take seriously in life? What do you take seriously? Uh, everybody takes something seriously, and other things less seriously. Everybody in the world takes something seriously. Even comedians, we learned a couple weeks ago, at the GMA Awards take things seriously, right? Um, every YouTuber has been making clickbait videos out of what happened with Will Smith and Chris Rock, right? And, and here's two comedians, guys, that make a living on, on cracking jokes and not taking things too seriously. And all of a sudden, it went from zero to 100, right? And, and things got real serious. Why did they get serious? Because Will Smith was serious about something, and it was his wife, okay? Um, I'm not saying that was a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just saying as an example, right? We take things seriously, certain things, and what we take seriously is typically based on our value system. So what we find to be valuable, what we find to be important to us, we will take seriously. So for a lot of us, what we take seriously is our safety, our health, our kids, um, if we have them, our relationships, our friends, maybe our job, maybe our image, uh, whatever it is, everybody takes something seriously. And in our culture, um, we seem to prize people that take certain things super seriously. Have you noticed? So um, even if you're Tom Brady and you've gone through three marriages and told each one that you will be second to my career, I hope you're okay with that. We praise these type of people and lift them up and say, good job taking your career seriously. There's one thing in our culture that we don't really like to be taken seriously, and that's following Jesus. Have you noticed that? 
Like we live in a culture where if, you, if you're really passionate about battling systemic racism or you're really passionate about, about championing a cause, a political cause, or you're really passionate about your career path or your skills or, or whatever it is, then we praise you and we applaud you, we make documentaries about you, we give you trophies. But if you're really excited about Jesus, we say, calm down. You're a little hyper-religious, right? You ever been told that? I've been told that my whole life. Hey, buddy, just calm down about the Jesus thing. It's awkward at the family dinners. We feel uncomfortable about it. Just calm down. The question I want to run after with you this, this morning is how serious should we take this thing called Christianity? And I don't mean cultural Christianity. I mean following after Christ. How serious should we take it? How serious should we take it? How serious does Jesus say that we should take it? This morning, Jesus is going to help us think through that. He's going to help us see how serious we should be about Christianity. He's going to show us at least four different things about what it truly means to be a Christian. And the title of this sermon is called Christianity According to Christ. Christianity According to Christ to Christ, not Christianity according to Joel Osteen, not Christianity according to Oprah Winfrey, not Christianity according to whatever, uh, you know, weak Western version that we've heard that, that fits our, 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 our therapy culture that we live in, but no, Christianity according to Christ. And I'll just brace you, it's a little intense. It's a little intense. This Text makes people uncomfortable, doesn't it? We read it. And you might be thinking, well, why would you preach this text with a room full of kids? I mean, this text is about dismemberment. It's about drowning. It's about eternal hell. These are serious things. Well, first of all, I would suggest to you, if you remember the context, there's actually a child in the room when Jesus has this conversation with his disciples. Remember Last week, he took a child and he brought... So Jesus seems to have no problem saying these things in front of kids. And I would suggest to you that we often allow the world to say very intense things in front of our children on the television, and we very often all simultaneously shelter our kids from the very intense things that Jesus would say right in front of them. Your kids understand. They know. They know there's darkness. They know there's this thing called hell. I remember sitting in, in, a, in a pew at like six years old and being very aware of this idea of eternal hell. So, so we don't need to shelter our kids from these realities. We need to talk about them openly. And that's what I'm going to do uh, this morning. And I'll, I'll definitely keep them in mind for sure as we talk. This, pa- this passage is difficult to interpret. It's difficult to interpret, so we're going to need to deploy some sound hermeneutical principles and judgment, and today this is going to feel very much like a teaching because I want you to wrestle with these passages with me. I want you to ask the right hermeneutical questions. Hermeneutics, by the way, just, it's, this, it's the study or the science of interpretation. It's the rules by which we play when we interpret a particular passage. And so what are the, the rules we're going to use as we interpret some of these difficult passages? So... Let's dive right in. We're going to see Jesus give us four um, truths about what the Christian life is. Four truths of what the Christian life is. If you want to write them all down, you can. They're number one, sacred. The Christian life is sacred. Number two, self-controlled. Number three, set apart. And number four, salty. 
Sacred, self-controlled, set apart, and salty. Let's dive in. Let's get a running start. You remember what happened last week? The disciples were um, arguing, like you do, about who is the greatest. Remember? They have this petty argument in the caravan as they're, as they're walking, and they get to the place where they're going, and Jesus says, hey, boys, in the house, he said, hey, can you, can you catch me up to speed on what you guys were talking about on the road? And it was crickets. They didn't want to say because they're embarrassed, right? And Jesus already knew what they were talking about. And so um, he says, let me tell you how you can be the greatest. He doesn't tell them not to try to be the greatest. He doesn't say it's, it's, it's folly to uh, try to be something great or do something great. Rather, he says, let me reorient what greatness is. He, he says, the greatest is the one who is the servant of all. Of course, foreshadowing the cross in which Jesus would become the servant of all. Not only all humans that would believe in him and follow after him in the kingdom, but all of creation. Jesus went to the cross to serve the redemption of all creation eternally. And and then he takes a child and he picks up the child. And so there's a kid in the room now. And he says, um, you need to be like this child or you need to receive one like this child. And it wasn't, he wasn't talking about childlike faith. He was talking about childlike station. He was saying, you need to become nothing essentially in order to be great in, in my economy. And then after this, John walks up to Jesus and says, uh, Rabbi, there was a man who was casting out demons in your name. He was using our brand logo. He, he was using the Jesus logo on his stuff. He, he didn't, you know, talk to um, the, the, the manager and see if that was okay. And so we told him to stop. This, this guy is out there. He's out there casting out demons. Now, ironically, if you remember, the disciples were unable to cast out their own demons previously. They were failing in this, in this area, and they see some other guy who's being a copycat doing the same thing, and they tell him to cut it out, presumably because of pride, because of jealousy, because they felt like they needed to be part of the exclusive inner cabinet of Christ, and this guy's breaking in right on their, their place, on their posture. So, so John musters up the courage to let Jesus know, don't worry, Jesus, we told him to stop. And Jesus goes, uh, that's not exactly what I was hoping you would do. Let's, let's pick it up there, just a little review here, verse 38. John said to him, teacher, someone was casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following, note it, us. <laughs> not, not you, Jesus. He wasn't following us. No one should be following these guys, right, at this point. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For one who does a mighty work in my name will, be able soon afterward, will not be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So now Jesus is talking about the importance of this person who has this new budding faith for Christ, this person who is is sort of um, choosing to come out and begin to serve Jesus. Jesus is saying, if anyone gives a cup of water to someone who is my disciple, they will have serious rewards. And now here's where we pick up in our text on verse 42. He continues this thought. Now, even though your Bible might have a header there, those headers are not inspired. Did you know that? The verses are not inspired. They were added later um, for for clarification. So 42 really is um, the continuation of Jesus' thought. And here's what he says, and here's where our text begins. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, the first question we need to ask is, who is Jesus talking about here? Is he talking about children? I don't think so. Notice he says, 
one of these little ones who what? Believe in me. Jesus here is talking about this young new believer who is out working miracles in the name of Jesus. And he's rebuking his disciples for in any way putting a stumbling block in front of this man who's trying to serve Jesus. The word sin is scandalizeon, which I probably butchered that pronouncement, but it's where we get the word scandalized, and it just means to stumble. So Jesus is saying if you cause one of these new um, young believers who have just started to follow me to stumble, it would be better that you what? That you tie a millstone around your neck and jump into the water. How intense. Now, this is not a, a small stone. This is a millstone used that, that only a donkey could turn. It would use to crush the wheat um, or crush anything, grapes or wine or whatever, um, olives. This was a large stone. And why is Jesus bringing up this vivid imagery? Well, one commentator notes that the Romans had drowned some insurrectionists in Galilee by using this millstone method of execution. And a group of the Galileans had so dealt with some of Herod's supporters. So the disciples had probably had these events in their mind. Jesus is drawing on history. He does that often. He's he's drawing up an illustration that they would be familiar with, that it would be better for them to to, to tie a millstone and jump off of a a bridge or whatever. Now, Now, the Jewish people don't like water. That's a very common understanding, right? They don't like water. That's why uh, I think in in Revelation, there's like a world with no water, right? Um, So they don't love water, even though um, some of them are fishermen on a lake. um, And even though there is a sea there, they don't like water. So this is a terrifying illusion that Jesus is drawing to. Now, why is Jesus saying this? What's the point? The point is this, that faith, listen, faith is precious to the Lord. And so are those who have it, especially those who have fragile faith. Those who have faith in the Lord are precious to Christ. They're so precious to him. They matter to him. They're so immensely valuable. That's why he said, if anyone even gives a drink of water to one of my disciples, he has an eternal reward. So There's, a, there's an immense amount of seriousness and gravitas to this, this picture that Jesus is trying to paint. And ironically, he's, he's sort of giving this to his disciples about his other disciples, He's warning his disciples, saying, don't trip one of my little disciples. Don't stumble one of them. He's like, they matter to me, they're important to me. Now, now we should consider this picture when we think about a few things. The first thing is when we think about Jesus fighting for us. You know, Jesus fights for you. He fights for you. He's a champion for you. And now, you might be going, man, my faith is weak. My faith is small. My faith feels unimpressive. Jesus is particularly tuned in to you. He's particularly ready to protect those who just are having the very beginning stages of faith. God may love the world, but he has a particular love for those who are his own. When I was a kid, um, I was homeschooled, I know, explains a lot, right? Um, yeah, that's why I can't spell. Um, my mom, I'm sorry, mom, I forgot you were here this week. She, <laughs> I need to like, pay attention to what weeks you're gone so I can make fun of you those weeks. No, my mom was an excellent teacher. I was a terrible student. Anyways, I was, I was homeschooled. <laughs> Amen, she said. Um, hashtag mom at your church. Okay, um, Love you, Mom. Uh, So I was homeschooled, and that means I had a lot of time during the day when my friends were all at school, and there was this kid who was a dropout. His name was Marvin, and he played basketball, and and he was the kid that nobody messed with. 
You know what I mean? He was the kid that if you got in a fight, you were going to lose, right? And, and so I became friends with Marvin. I'd go play basketball with him, you know, oftentimes when everybody else was in, in school. And so Marvin and I had become friends even though I was this little kid and he was like in high school. We were playing football one day and I, I kept tackling this one kid and he didn't like that. He got really frustrated with me. And so he decided he was going to fight me. So he comes at me trying to fight me. And in comes Marvin, the kid that I had made friends with, like a lightning bolt. And he runs into this kid that wanted to fight me. And he, this kid goes launching, felt like 10 feet. And I probably not in real life, you know, it's like the sandlot, everything's bigger. But, but he goes launching like 10 feet. And this kid, Marvin, gets really big and he goes, if you mess with Sam, you mess with me. And I was like, yes. <laughs> power. It's not my power, but I was a small kid. So um, I would have been easy pickings. Marvin stepped in for me. Ever seen that picture? It's the coolest picture. I can't, I can't know if I can explain it, but it's like the moment where, like, where you think the bad, it's like a scene in multiple movies where you think the bad guys are afraid of you, and you're thinking pretty good, and then you look behind, you realize there's a lion behind you roaring. You know, the, real, the reality is Jesus is fighting for you. And the weaker you feel, the more he's fighting. Isn't that great? Jesus cares for those who are young in the faith. He cares for those who are not young in the faith. It's such a beautiful reality. So we should consider this picture when we think about Jesus fighting for us. We should also think about it when we consider how we fight with one another as Christians. Really. I want you to remember this phrase. Um, Taking shots at those for whom Christ died is taking shots at Christ's bride. Right? Taking shots at those for whom Christ died is taking shots at Christ's bride. You think Will Smith got mad? Think about that. Next, the next time that, and, and I'm as guilty as anyone, the next time that we think to say something negative about one who is truly a disciple of Christ, we ought to remember this picture. Um, it was actually, uh, it was actually um, what's his name? Clement of Rome uh, in 42 that, that, that used this as an admonition against church schisms. So this is largely how this passage was interpreted in church history. It was seen as a warning against Christians taking shots at one another taking lowball shots at one another. We should also consider this picture when we think about how careful and intentional we are with the fragile new regeneration of believers. And you, know, you might ask the question, you should ask the question, how might I stumble someone who is young in the faith? I think there's lots of ways. I think the most common way is to lay legalistic burdens on them that Christ has not laid. We do this in Christian culture, don't we? We're less concerned with them actually being right with the Lord and believing the gospel and more concerned with them doing the things that we feel are awkward or uncomfortable if they don't do them. So we could stumble new believers in that way. We could stumble them with license. We could stumble them with, with, with putting a freedom on them that maybe they have, aren't mature enough to, to walk in. We could stumble them with, with our apathy. You know, sometimes people get saved and they're really excited about Jesus and we want to kind of tamp that down a little bit. Just wait. You're new you won't be as excited about Jesus in five years. Don't ever tell someone that. Boo, right? Yeah, no, let him, let him be. I love, I love the crowd participation. This is great. Yeah, boo, right? No, let him be excited, man. I mean, we should get more and more excited about Jesus the older we get. We really should. You know, we really should. So, so how dare we ever cause one to stumble in that way? Now, Transitioning from Christianity being sacred here, now let's, let's look at the next thing. Jesus now turns from the seriousness of causing others to, to stumble to the seriousness of causing yourself to stumble. 
You know, you have a relationship with yourself. You have a relationship with your own faith and you cause yourself to stumble often. You trip yourself up. You're your own worst enemy. Jesus came to save you from you, largely. Did you know that? Yes, there's demons. Yes, there's sin. And most of the things that you're battling are yourself. And that's what the work of, of Christ is that he's trying to do. So, so, so now we're gonna see um, this change from people out there to, to, to the self. Listen to what one commentator said. He said, seducing simple souls is disastrously easy work, but still more easy is seducing oneself by letting the body lead the spirit astray. So Jesus is gonna draw this out here. Uh, by the way, I have to say this because it would be, it would be um, a, 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 a mistake if I didn't. You're gonna notice if you're careful that verse 44 and 46 are missing. And you might think, well, did someone cut that out of my Bible? Um, here's, what, here's what happened. I say this as briefly as I possibly can. We have older manuscripts. Um, the oldest manuscripts do not include those verses. And so the, the, the more accurate translations that take into account the oldest manuscripts have chosen to leave those verses out. And, and in case you're worried about that, they're, they're literally just a redundant thing that's already in the text. They just put where the worm does not die and fire is not quenched on the end of each statement. And I don't know why they did that, but some scribe at some point decided he was gonna tack those on there. It doesn't really make it better. It doesn't really make it worse. But we should really be thankful that Bible scholars notice these things. We have manuscripts that date back to the first century, and we can really see whether or not something, that was something Mark actually put in there. So you can study that more on your own. Let's look at verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, this is intense language, is it not? I mean, where's the Jesus with the lamb over his shoulders? And like, what, where's, the, where's, the, like what, where's the warm fuzzies in this? You know, where's, like, well, this is hard Bible, right? Anybody read this? Like, like we, we study this in a group on Mondays. Um, and, and one of the gals in the group, she, she texted the group. She's like, man, I'm struggling with this passage. This is heavy. And I'm thinking to myself, good. This, this kind of Bible right here should stir you unless you're not really reading with any gravitas, unless you're not really reading with any, any sense of seriousness, okay? This passage is serious. Jesus is getting at something serious here, and we need to wrestle with what that is, right? Now, this is Jesus deploying a particular kind of, um, of speak, a particular kind of, of, of um, oratory called metaphoric hyperbole. Metaphoric hyperbole, and he does it with a threefold repetition. So he uses it three times for emphasis. The Jews, when they would want to emphasize something, they would say it multiple times. So in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. Jesus is repetition, through repetition, he's, he's emphasizing this, and he's using three different physical avenues of sin sight, hands, uh, feet. Where, where our bodies take us, where our eyes look, where our hands can do to encapsulate this idea of physical sin. Now listen, this is important. This passage is not to be taken literally. Everybody go, ah. However, it is not to be taken lightly. It is not to be taken literally but it is not to be taken lightly. Jesus did not choose this graphic imagery so that we could just read on 
and not think about it. It is meant to hit us. Now, Deuteronomy clearly states that self-mutilation is ungodly, so we can rule that out. What we know, though, is that Jesus is making a point here, and that point needs to connect. It needs to connect with his audience. Now, there are two ways we can go wrong with interpreting this passage, and I've heard a lot of sermons in my life on these passages. One of the ways that we can go wrong is when we oversand the edges. We kind of dull the sharpness of this text. We go, you know what? This doesn't really mean this. It doesn't really mean that. So let's just kind of move on. And we, we don't let it have its full emphasis. And that's a mistake. The other thing we do, though, is we over sharpen the edges. We, 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 we take verses like this and we use them to create sorting bins within churches where if you are... Um, you know, willing to do something extreme and you're willing to, to never take part in these certain things and you're very mature. And that's really not what Jesus is trying to get at. He's not trying to create an abstinence culture where, where sort of every, we're, we're marked, our maturity is marked by what we don't do or what we get rid of or what we eliminate. That's not the point either. So let me give you three things that this text is not and that's gonna give us hopefully a bullseye to what Jesus is getting at here. Okay, this text is not, first of all, it's not suggesting that removing a physical part of your body can eradicate sin's presence. Are you with me? Okay, we know this because Jesus taught about sin a lot. Jesus taught about sin a lot, and when he did talk about sin, he tended to make the emphasis not the physicality of sin, but the heart of sin. He said in Mark chapter 7, we looked at this before, verse 18, uh, or 19, he said, since or yeah, 18. He said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters into his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? And he said, what comes out, listen, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within it, out of the heart man of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, so on and so forth. Jesus's point is that it is not our bodies that cause us to sin, it is our hearts. Everybody understand that? So removing a, a limb is not going to make you not sin, okay? That's not what Jesus is saying. James 1.13 says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Sin lives within you. It's a condition of the human heart. Um, then he says, desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death, okay? So, so Jesus isn't saying that if you Take off your arm, all of a sudden you're going to be holy. That's, that's not what he's saying. Secondly, Jesus is not echoing something called Platonic dualism. You're saying, what is Platonic dualism? Plato introduced the idea and other Greek thinkers that, that basically this, that the physical uh, universe is evil and the spiritual universe is good. So therefore, my body doesn't really matter. And this, this was really saturating the Greek thinking of the day in which Jesus stepped into. So, so a lot of Greeks think, you know, it doesn't matter what I do with my body because my soul can stay pure inside of my body. And then like people like the Stoics would come along and say, well, because the, the flesh is evil, because my body is evil, then I need to, to restrict in extreme ways my physicality in order that my spirituality will grow. Some Christians think that way. It's called Platonic dualism. Jesus had a theology of the body and the soul, and the two were connected, and the New Testament continues that thinking. Okay, we don't see our bodies as evil and our souls as good. We don't see physical things as evil and spiritual things, floaty things, metaphysical things as good. We see all things as being gods, and we see all things as falling under the rule of 
Christ. And we see all things as being redeemed by God. So Jesus isn't saying, get rid of your icky, evil, physical body and go be more spiritual. That's not what spirituality means. Thirdly, Jesus is not masochistically delighting in unnecessary suffering. He doesn't delight in you going out and hitting yourself in the head with a hammer. That doesn't get you points, right? That's not what he's talking about here. You guys remember Monty Python, Quest for the Holy Grail? This guy's walking around like, whack, hitting themselves in the heads with boards. Am I the only one that remembers that? One, two, wow, okay. Homework assignment, Monty Python, Quest for the Holy Grail. Yeah, there's like these monks, and they're like hitting themselves in the head with boards, and it's like this is, makes them more spiritual, right? Jesus isn't saying that. So what is he saying? What is he getting at here? Listen, this is important. This is not a method for battling sin, primarily, as much as it is a metric for evaluating sanctification. What do I mean by sanctification? Sanctification is a big spiritual Asian word that means set apart. It means that you are being set apart for the purpose of God. What Jesus is trying to get at here is he's trying to say, what, you could put it in a question, it would go like this, what would you not be willing to give up if it meant that you would ensure that you were going to spend eternity with the, in the kingdom with Christ and not go into eternal destruction, eternal separation from Christ. What would you not be willing to give up is kind of what Jesus is saying. You know, some of the emphasis of this passage is lost on us because we live in a culture um, where if you did lose a limb, you would get, um, you get disability. Jesus lived in a culture where if you lost a limb or lost an eye, you would essentially be, um, you would be destitute in the world. You would be unable to provide for yourself. You would be considered um, worthless. So the idea of removing a, a, a very valuable, very important part of your body in this day was to say, are you willing to literally give up everything in this world if it ensures that you get into the right place eternally? It's kind of what Jesus is getting at here. Let me give you an analogy maybe that'll, that'll connect this a little more. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spare the details because we do have kiddos in here. Okay? But there was a story, a true story of a man who was out climbing. Maybe you've heard this. I think they made a movie out of it. There was a story of a man who went climbing one, day, one time and he got his arm stuck in some rocks. Have you heard about this story? He tried and tried and tried and tried to get his arm removed. And he couldn't. So he remembered that he had an item with him. It was a Swiss Army knife. And the man did the unthinkable. Okay, I'm not going to get into the details. You know what happened. The man chose his life over his arm. This is the idea. Jesus is trying to get his disciples to feel the intense question of what is your life? What is your life, church? What is your life, Christian? What is your body that you would not be willing to give up something for it? Is your life this world? Is your life your success? Is your life your physicality? Or is your life eternity with Christ? Is your life Jesus? Would you be, would you be willing to give up anything to ensure that you would make it to the finish line with the Lord? I think this is what this is meant to really draw us to ask. When the kingdom of God is your life, then Sin leads to eternal death, and what would you not be willing to get rid of in that way? If someone was making withdrawals on your bank account every day, little withdrawals, 
99 cents. You ever had that before? We were like, what is, what is that? What is that charge? You know? I always play dumb. My wife's like, $10 at McDonald's. I'm like, I don't know. Somebody, somebody's got a car, man. They're going to Taco Bell every day. No, I'm just kidding. I don't do that. Um, no, but if somebody was making withdrawals, right? You would notice. Why would you notice? You would notice because that's your money. That's your prize money. That's your, you worked for that. That's your income. It's important to you. You're serious about your income, right? If somebody came in and withdrew your, withdrew your entire savings account at once, what would you do? You would cancel the card. Jesus' point here is he's saying, what is taking a draw on your soul every day? What's taking a draw? And, 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 and it's probably not a big draw. It's probably a small draw over time. 99 cents, 99 cents, 99 cents, 99 cents. At some point, you got to go, you know what? This thing is stealing my soul, and this could lead me to a place where I no longer am headed to eternal life with Christ. Are you willing to give up that thing, no matter what it is, even if it's the most extreme of things? Like in this century, uh, you know, maybe it would be like your smartphone. You think I'm joking? I heard the craziest thing the other day. It made me so frustrated. They were talking about how often babies are dying because they're left in cars and parents forget that they're in there. Well-meaning parents, they go into the store, they forget babies in there. So this is what this news outlet said that we should do in order to kind of combat this. So like, take your smartphone and put it in the car seat with your baby. Then you'll remember your baby. And they were like, isn't that a great idea? I'm like, oh, where have we landed as a culture where we are more likely to remember our phone than we are to remember a child? And where am I going with this? Well, I just, I just wonder sometimes. Our phones lead our feet and our hands and our eyes into places sometimes that we would never normally be able to go. And what if the Lord was saying, hey, and I'm not saying you need to get rid of your phone, okay? We're not going to be that church that, like, if you want to be a member here, you can't have a smartphone, okay? But I am saying, what if? We go, well, I can't, I can't do Apple Pay, you know? I can't do Netflix, I can't get, what if? Like, would you be willing to do it if it was something that was controlling you? The question is, guys, here's the point. What's controlling you? What has power over you? What's withdrawing um, from your soul? What's taking your spiritual nutrition from you? Would you be willing to get rid of it? Are you actively making war with it? Are you taking it seriously? Are you taking your eternal soul seriously? Or are you just going, ah, whatever? Doesn't really matter. Any, anybody can have my PIN number. Anybody can have access to my bank account. Just withdraw whatever you want. Or are you thinking, what am I letting go into my eyes? Where am I taking my feet? Where am I putting my hands? Where is my mind? Am I making war on that which is making war on me? Herbert said, self must be denied that it may not be destroyed. Listen, disciple means disciplined one. Are you a disciple? Disciple means one who takes their body and puts it under subjection of the king of kings and the kingdom of kingdoms and says, I'm not going to live like everybody else. I'm going to choose to make war on that which would destroy me. This is what Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verse 12. He said, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Here's the reality. Jesus doesn't want you to remove your body. He wants you to surrender your body. 
He doesn't want you to remove your body. He wants to redeem your body. Some of you have things in your past that make you feel like your body is broken. God's will for you is not to remove your body. It is to redeem, restore, and listen, resurrect your body. You see, this thing called sanctification, this thing called the Christian life, it's about you being restored to everything that God made that was good. Money, sexuality, relationships, creation, all of these things. God is actively renovating and restoring you and redeeming you in these areas. Some of you hate your bodies. Some of your bodies are rebelling against you. Some of your bodies remind you of shameful things in the past. Let me just, let me just remind you that, that Jesus is redeeming that by you making your body a living sacrifice to him and letting the, the finished work of the cross wash over your past, wash over your memories, wash over your sinful proclivities, day by day saying, God, I'm sanctifying, setting myself apart for you. My arms are yours, Lord, use them for your glory. My eyes are yours, Lord, use them for your glory. May they not be taken hostage by something on a screen that I, don't, I really shouldn't be looking at. My feet are yours, Lord. Take them where you want for your glory. My body is a gift. God is the creator of created things, physical things. He made them. He wants them. He wants to use them for his glory. And he's giving you a physical, eternal body someday because that's how much God loves physical, created things. Isn't that cool? Paul says every athlete, 1 Corinthians 9, 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a per not a perishable wreath, but an imperishable wreath. He says, so I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Christian, you don't hear these kind of sermons very often in the West, but are you self-controlled? Are you a disciple? I'm not saying, are you perfect? I'm not saying, do you ever sin? I'm saying, are you self-controlled? Are you asking the question, what am I doing with my body? What am I doing with my time? What am I doing with my money? What am I doing with my eyes? What am I doing with my words? And is my behavior becoming more set apart for the, for the glory of Christ? That is a disciple. So again, this is Christianity according to Christ. What does Jesus say a Christian is? A disciple. At some point in the West, we separated disciple from Christian. I don't know when we did that. Oh, you could be a Christian, but you could be a disciple later. No. Being a Christian is being a disciple. And being a disciple is one who is wholly given over to the discipline and the, di the disciplined life of following after Christ. Let's move on. Number three, a Christian is set apart. Now, 49 is one of the most difficult passages, I think, to interpret that I've come across in Mark. Um, so that in and of itself makes it interesting. Uh, it's only in the book of Mark and so I want to I interact with it a little bit. We're going to be good Bible students this morning. We're going to ask the right questions, hopefully, to get us to the right interpretation. Now, after Jesus says what he says about removing limbs and things, which is intense, he goes to verse 49, and he says the following statement. Listen, he says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Okay, now some of you go, Oh, yeah, 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 salt. Wait, fire? Salt? Fire? Where, what? What's the combination there? We, there are verses in the Bible, other places where Jesus talks about salt. There are verses in the Bible where Jesus talks about fire, um, like the ones we just read, eternal fire. But what's this salt and fire idea? What is Jesus getting at here? We need to figure this out. First of all, Jesus is not starting a new thought here. He's continuing his thought. So whatever Jesus has been getting at, he's continuing to get at that. 
Secondly, he's not referring back to hell. This is a very different idea Jesus is introducing here. This is a very different kind of fire that Jesus is introducing here. And even though these elements are familiar to us biblically, um, we need to, to see them as together and ask what good Bible students ask, why are these two words together? See, what some people do when they read their Bible, they go, oh, salt, okay, well, I have some memories about salt. Fire, oh, yeah, I have some memories about fire. There, no, Jesus is saying something new here. He's getting at something new. He's combining these two analogies. He's combining these two elements in order to make a point. We have to ask the question, what is that point? Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to Leviticus chapter 2, verse 12. The question we need to be asking is, where else in the Bible are salt and fire put together? Where else in the Bible do we see these realities combined? And the most obvious one, in fact, really the only one that, that I think really makes sense for this, is in Leviticus chapter 2. Here's what it says. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 12. As an offering of first fruits. Now, this is an offering, by the way. This is not an offering of atonement. This is not to make restitution of, for your sin. This is a, an offering of, of worship to God. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall, listen, you shall season all your grain offerings with what? Salt. Interesting. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer the grain offering in your first fruits, fresh ears, roasted with what? Fire. Interesting. Crushed new grain, you shall put oil on it. You get the idea. Here's the, here's the reality. For some reason, in the Old Testament, uh, God the Father wanted these particular sacrifices to be burned on the altar, burned with fire, and to be seasoned with salt. Now, what is all of that about? Well, the salt was a sign, it was a symbol of preservation. The, sign was, or the salt was a symbol of permanence. It was meant to display the fact that the covenant itself, um, you know, they didn't have refrigerators back then, like we do, right? We just throw it in the refrigerator, throw your Hot Pockets in the freezer, right? No, you guys don't eat those? Okay. Um, by the way, if you eat enough Hot Pockets, they will preserve you from the inside <laughs> because the chemicals, uh, they actually, yeah, it's true. Um, no, no. Uh, this, this salt was, was a picture of preservation. It was that the sacrifice would become acceptable to God, seasoned with salt because it was to be a delight to him, and therefore it would be preserved and it would, it would actually be an appropriate sacrifice to the Lord. So what is Jesus talking about here when he says, everyone will be salted with fire? We need to remember what Jesus' point has been here in this text. The point has been setting apart one's entire being for the superior purpose of the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying this. Everyone is going to be put into the fire. And I don't mean eternally. He doesn't mean eternally. Everyone is going to be put into the trials of life. Everyone is going to go through fiery trials. Everybody's going to go through struggle. The difference between the believer who is seasoned with salt and the, and the one who is not a believer is that one will be preserved and one will not. One will prove to be a living sacrifice unto God. One will, be, will prove to be an appropriate sacrifice to God, and the other one will not. P 
Peter, in 1 Peter, let me just read this, 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9, this will all come together. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory. What is the picture here? It's the same idea that I believe Jesus is getting on. Look, everyone will go into the fire and what does the fire do? This is, listen, this is not a fire of perdition. This is not a punitive fire. It's a fire of purification. It's a fire of purifying. The fire here of life reveals the value of the thing that's been placed into it. Uh, let me say it this way. This is it's confusing to you. There's a difference, John Piper talks about, there's a difference between a forest fire and a refiner's fire. What's the difference? A forest fire destroys everything indiscriminately, doesn't it? What does a refiner's fire do? It is heat for a particular purpose. It is heat in order to burn away impurities. It is heat in order to, to bring something masterful and, and some kind of a craft out of the fire that reveals the beautiful work of the person who has been working that, that for, ready to forge that item in, in the flame. Okay, the reality here, the idea here is, is that Jesus is saying everyone's gonna go through flames, but those who are salted, those who have Christ in them, those who have been worked on by the master craftsman who is Christ will come out of the flame as glorious and refined. Are you with me? I, I know like uh, that was kind of like a, a boring explanation, but guys, can I say it again? You will come through the fire and instead of being burned, you will be a display of God's master craftsmanship. Isn't that cool? What happens with gold when you put it in the fire? It doesn't burn up. What happens is the impurities burn away. You are the master craftsmanship of Christ. You are not your own master craftsman. You're not responsible for making yourself some kind of masterpiece. Christ has been forming you. This idea of testing is not the kind of testing that you do when you want to see if something works. The testing is the testing of a master craftsman who wants to reveal the beauty of his work in the flames. So when you go through trials, when you go through struggles, if you've been salted, if you are part of Christ's workmanship, you will be an example of the beauty of what God has been doing. This is what Paul was trying to get at in Romans 12.1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's a beautiful reality. Let me, let me explain it like this. A week and a half ago, our dear brother Chuck, who just passed away last Friday, um, he was really sick, and he was in the hospital. I think I texted you guys about it. And I went and I saw Chuck in the hospital. And he, he could barely talk. He, his, his, I mean, he had a hard time talking anyways. He, had a, he couldn't get words out very well, but I was really having to listen. And here's this man who is just wasted away to nothing. He's so skinny, and he's in so much pain, and he's so frustrated. You could tell he was annoyed with his oxygen thing. It was going in his nose. And I just sat with him, and, and I, I didn't want him to feel like he had to talk, so I just was like reading him scripture. And you know Chuck, like he just kept smiling. And then he started talking about the, the nurse and how he was gonna, like he was gonna tell them about Jesus, but they're already Christian. And he's like, right, they're already Christian, yeah. 
He's like, this is a good place to witness. He's like, this is a good, this is a good place. This is where I'm supposed to be. I mean, this man who was about to pass away in a couple of days, all he could think about was someone else. All they could think about was Jesus. All they could think about was the gospel. Here's a man who's had his throat removed. Here's a man who's had, um, who's had uh, um, help me out, he had a stroke. He had a stroke, so he had a hard time getting words out. Here's a man who's just skinny. He literally couldn't eat food. He had to put food into the port of his, of his stomach for like three months. One time he asked me to bring him a coffee. I'm like, what are you going to do with it? He's like, I'm going to pour it in my tube. I'm like, dude, you're crazy. That's amazing. Yet here is a man that every time I would see him, he would not stop talking about Jesus. What, are, what am I looking at there? I'm looking at a man that has gone through a forge of fire. That man has struggled. And how came the other side? Not a weak physical man. No, I don't see a weak physical man on that bed. I see a master craftsmanship of God who salted this man so that he would be preserved through the fiery trials of struggles. And he has come out glorious. And now he is with the Father with a new body. I didn't see weakness. I saw a man that I want to be like. And you know what Chuck said to me? I'm not trying to make a, a hero out of Chuck. He's just amazing. But, but you know what he said to me? He said, I don't regret anything that's happened to me. This guy has been through hell and back. He said, I don't regret anything that's happened to me because he's like, he's like I wouldn't be who I am if, if that stuff hadn't happened to me. What kind of maturity does that take? You know, we view our trials. We, drew the, we, we, we view the fire that we go through and we go, we're just frustrated with it. And give me a pill, give me a shortcut, give me an app, give me something, give me a drive-through. How do I get through this quicker? I don't like trials, I don't like struggles, I don't like heat, I don't like fire. Can I move on? And Jesus is saying, no, you don't understand. The, the flames are what's going to reveal the glory of what I've been doing in you the whole time. That's what Paul's getting at when he says you're a broken vessel. The more broken the vessel, the more the glory of the treasure inside the vessel breaks through. And it's in our weakness where our flesh begins to be peeled away and we can see the glory of what God has been working internally. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is saying to his disciples, he says, look, you're going to be salted with fire. You're going to go through trials. You're going to go through struggles. If you're truly my disciple, the fire will reveal the work that I've been doing in you. I know that's hard to hear, especially hard to hear when you're struggling. But this is what Christianity looked like according to Christ. It's serious business. Guys, there are seriously hard things going on in our church right now. Some of you guys don't know about them, and that's okay. There are people in here right now that could burst into tears if you ask them how they're doing. There are hard things happening. Following Jesus is serious business. Now, I know you come in here on Sunday, and the music's loud, and we smile, and we have a good time, we celebrate because Jesus is risen. Okay, but there's seriously hard things happening in this world. Jesus is doing serious work in the midst of that. We are to be a serious people. That doesn't mean we don't joke. It doesn't mean we don't have fun. But we take Christ seriously because there are serious things happening and there's serious work happening in this church and in our lives. Verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Jesus is saying the most important thing for you, Christian, is that you keep your saltiness. What does he mean by saltiness? I think what he means is he, he means it's Christ in you. You keep Christ at work in you, and when Christ is at work in you, you will love one another. What did Jesus say? They will know you are Christians by your what? Love. Was the first thing Christians did when the Holy Spirit came? They loved each other. The way that we love each other in this community, the way that we love each other supernaturally is the salt of the earth. 
Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. How do we get through fiery trials? We stay together. How do we get through fiery trials? We continue to keep pressing into the body of Christ because that's where the grace is. That's where Jesus can work in and through you, through the physical, tangible body of Christ ministering to one another. That's how we get through this trial. That's how we get through this hard stuff, by pressing into one another. That's how we keep the salt within ourselves. So let me review. A life of a true Christian is sacred, it is self-controlled, it is set apart, and it is salty. The call, the, the call to follow Jesus is serious business. Now, I just want to say this in closing. The key to taking your Christian walk seriously, listen to me, don't tune out, I'm almost done. The, the key to taking your Christian walk seriously is not taking yourself more seriously. It's taking Christ more seriously. The key to taking Christianity seriously is to take Christ seriously. And listen, this is even more important. The key to taking Christ more seriously is to see how seriously Christ took you. And I don't mean how seriously he took your performance. I don't mean how seriously he took your, what you've done. I mean that when you think about the millstone that you deserve to have around your neck, Jesus took that millstone. When you think about the, the, the savage beating, uh, the, 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 the struggle, the fleshly destruction that we deserve because of our sin, Jesus took that. When you think about the fiery trial that we're going through, Jesus went through one much more severe. He took you seriously. And when we take what he's done for us seriously, we become serious Christians. My prayer would be, man, that we would be a salty community that suffer well, that suffer together, that suffer by loving one another, a, a, a serious community that can laugh at ourselves and glorify Christ as the supreme being and supreme creator of all things. That we would be a, a group, a community of people that's serious about following Jesus. We don't see this Christianity thing as a throwaway, something that's a side note or a junk drawer thing that we add to our life. It is the nucleus, it is the center of everything that we do. We take Christ seriously because he took us seriously, came into this world and died for you and I, amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? Father, this passage, Lord, it's, it's hard. And God, I pray that, that everyone here would not leave and just move on, that they would take time to reflect with this passage. They wouldn't just take my word. They wouldn't just take my interpretation. That they would dig into it themselves, that they would ask, what is this passage meant to driving me to do, Lord? And would you bring conviction direction, vision, Lord, out of this passage for this church. Lord, thank you so much that in the midst of serious things, we have a serious God who's serious about redeeming this world. I pray that the thing we are most serious about, Jesus, would be you. Lord, we love you. We pray you would bless our mealtime together as we hang out and, and have some food. Lord, we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.